So oh, can I ask you a question quick? Yeah, no, it's my card. Um, when we talked um, on January 21st about the J JEDP. Yes, JEDP. Do you think that that whole thing is like kind of like textual criticism gone too far? Like textual criticism is a good thing. No. You don't think textual criticism is a good thing? No. Really? Why? Okay, uh, what do you mean by textual criticism? So, uh, most people... Like taking a text, any kind of a text, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and kind of dissecting it. Alright, so here, the first principle of textual criticism is what? What's the first principle? Alright, yes, we're being critical. Right. It operates, first, the first premise is that it's not true. Really? Mm -hmm. No. That's the, yeah, that's the first premise. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. There's plenty of people who would like to use textual criticism. Um, I mean, what, what I think people get confused. The text critical method, I know this is a hard, a difficult question. No, we are, yes, you are talking about, we're talking about two different things. Um, the, the, the textual criticism methodology is, um, is something different than what we do. What we do, yes, we criticize the text, I suppose, in a basic sense. No, what we do is what's called the historic grammatical method. It's a different method. So we operate from the first premise that we believe it, that it's true, and then from the truth of it, then we, I'm doing two things at once here, if you don't mind. Um, then, we, then we read it critically in a sense of, like, what do the words mean? Um, what is the grammatical construction of the words? What's the historic context of it? That sounds critical. It's not. By, by critical, you have to remember the root of the word. And, I, and some, again, some people have adopted the methodology and they think it's, it's safe. I don't think it's safe. Um, yeah, so what's at the root? What's the root word at the, at the root of critical? What's... Yeah, okay, see, this is the problem. What's the, what's the root word of critical? What, what is... No. Somebody has a dictionary, right? Oh. It's, it has the same... It has the same root as crisis. Crisis, all right, is that helpful? So what is a crisis? Crisis is uh, when there's there's two competing ideas and you have to reconcile them, right? It could be like two people at war. That's a crisis, right? Um, so here the crisis is what's tr what's true. Uh, no, the crisis for higher critical method is what's authentic and what's not. So, and then what's not is the Bible. And we have what's authentic. And then they, they have to be opposed to each other. And then by taking the thesis, there's, a tr there's an authentic, and the antithesis, which is what we have in the scripture, then they have to be reconciled, and you get the synergy, which is actually Marx. That's Karl Marx's idea. But Marx got it from the Bible critics. Stop. Yes. So... We, you've heard critical method, right? You've heard of this? What do we call it? What's the, what's the thing? Critical race theory. You've heard this? 
It's just the same approach, but it's taken to history, not to the Bible. Oh, so the history that you've learned, right, and what's written in the textbooks and in the history books, then the truth, or what's authentic, and then we have to reconcile these two, and then you come up with something like the 1619 Project, which said, no, the whole history of the United States is actually one of slavery. You just didn't read it right. Ah, all right, so this, this is what's happening with higher criticism in the Bible. This isn't, I'm not talking about faithful Christians who use some of the methodology, but at the core, what it, what it was based on is that the Bible is not true, and we have to get to the truth of it. Right? What we have in the scriptures is not an authentic record of what Jesus said and did, for example. So we have to figure out what is actually authentic and what's not. Is it useful, though, for people who think that, who, who think the Bible's not true? Would it be useful? Yeah, that's why I'd say some of the methodology can be helpful. Right. Except we don't do it. We do. We actually do historic grammatical methods. So we say, hey, look, Pontius Pilate was a real guy. And so there's, there's actual historical context here. This isn't, this isn't a made-up story. If it is a made-up story, it's set in the context of real history. No, that's historical method. That's historical method. Yeah, text, what, when, you, when we say, um, especially higher criticism, that's what, it's, that's what it's referring. The critical method... Well, yeah, but I mean, it's okay. We can. Who else do we criticize? We criticize our pastor. Is he saying what God's word says, right? We criticize. Hopefully, we criticize uh, what we hear on the news or on television. Are they telling us the truth? No. Well. Right. I mean, there there's such a thing as a as a healthy degree of skepticism, which I would say is um, <laughs> always. I, well, okay, I'm not going to impose upon you my own approach. I just assume nobody's telling the truth. Now, that's not, I know that sounds terrible. Oh, how dare you do that? But it's like, like, I mean, think about it. If somebody comes to me in pastoral care, they're going to tell me their side of the story, right? They're probably not going to be completely forth, forthwith or honest. Not initially. So then I have to ask questions. Or maybe, you know, the other person on the other side of the conflict, I need to listen to them. It seems like you're playing both sides in a way, because I, I honestly want to hear whatever your perspective on it, on it is. And I hope we can come to some realization of the truth. Sometimes we don't. We never actually find out where the fault is. Like if there is one fault, it's probably everybody's at fault and everybody needs to live in the forgiveness of sins, right? So forgiveness is applied to both sides and the fault is probably collaborative, <laughs> right? But that, I mean, you see how that process goes? It's the same thing with children, right? What happened, Esther? Esther says. Then we say, Patrick, what happened? And Patrick says, and you're like, hmm. Especially if you got to witness it, you're like, actually, neither of you are telling the truth, right? You know, that kind of thing. So that, that methodology, I mean, you could call that legal proof. These are actually the realms of what's called Christian apologetics when it's done well. And there's different kinds. There's the, there's the legal apologetic. There's the historic apologetic. There's, um, there's the evidentiary where we just look at um, you know, what are the, what, what is the art, what are the artifacts? Like you said, um, there's the literary apologetic as well. Like there's stories in the Bible that are echoed into other cultures. That's all helpful. Those are apologetic me methodology. They're not really what we call the critical method. It is being critical, but it's not the critical method. That's a technical thing. 
So JEDP operated on the first principle that what we have in the Bible was not authentically written down by Moses. That was the first principle. And if it wasn't written by Moses, then it can't be God's truth. It has to be a truth. And then you can see where this goes. Then you have American mainline Protestant and other, well, even mainline Roman Catholics a lot of time that just, just flat out say the Bible has a truth, but it's not the exclusive claim on truth. Never mind what Jesus said. Well, because maybe Jesus didn't say that. They added that in just to kind of, somebody added that in, Constantine or whatever, right? I mean, right. So, good question. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of opportunity for us to, to test the scriptures. And I, that, that's a different exercise, would be my argument. Um, maybe it comes off being critical, I suppose. But um, if it's done in faith, it's, it's for faith, right? That's what I would argue anyway. All right, what do we need? We need Ezekiel. That's a big easy, easy 47. Thank you, easy. So um, I don't think we actually read anything about the water, did we? No. So that's why I was looking for the handout from November 26, 2003, which was the introduction to chapters 40 to 48. We're in 47. Hey, you sensing it? You're feeling it? We're getting closer. And 48 is kind of, it's not that, it's not that difficult probably for us to understand. Because one of the pictures in here is the one I want, I hope. Ah, yes. Figure two, November, I should have kept out the rest of the copies. <laughs> After that, because you probably don't all, you didn't all bring it, right? No. All right, where? I just, I just sorted everything out, and then I didn't keep that one out for you. All right. Introduction to Ezekiel 40. All right, I only have a few copies, but here they are. Anybody needs one? I'll just stick it right there. Figure two is the map of the temple, all right, which is what we need. And I'll just hold it up for you. So remember, remember this one with the cube and all of the... The rooms and the walls, and it was perfectly square, but there, you never come in on the, on the west side because, we, as we've read now, you know, even the prince comes in this circuitous way, but he comes in and he, because the Lord, you face up to the Lord who's standing on the west, right? The glory of the Lord. Um, but we didn't talk about the one little feature on here, which is the stream of water coming out from the altar. Well, it's more than a stream, turns out, all right? So this comes out of the temple and it keeps going. Um, I probably could have just pulled up a map on the, on the, on the Google, but uh, there you go. So that's what we want to look at. Um, we're going to refer back to last week's handout, but not, not initially. We'll come back to it. All right. So we'll use this week, which is labeled February 11th today. Good. So let's, let, let's read it first and talk and discuss it. And then we'll, we'll do the summary from last week. As a summary, this week. Summary. summary, yes. All right, so chapter 47, we're going to do... Uh, I think we should just read the whole... Th uh, 1 through 12, I think we should read the whole reading that I've got before you. All right, let me change versions. There we go. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
before the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. <clears throat> and when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water, came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that would not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. <clears throat> when I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes, <clears throat> goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will be wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engadi to En. Eglum, mm -hmm. they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But if swamps and marshes will not be healed, they will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for foods. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for good, and their leaves for medicine. Yeah, the fruit for food. Okay. Uh, so this is, uh, does not sound nearly as judgmental as a lot of the things we read in Ezekiel, right? This is actually good news, because we see what's happening here uh, with this river. It's, it's kind of curious. Two things come to mind that I don't think I put on the notes at all. Um, there's this strange feature of this river that it starts small and it grows large, right? As it goes farther and farther east, it gets larger and larger. Now, that would presume that there's tributaries feeding into it, right? Except they're not, there's no tributaries described here. Now, so it, this is, it's clearly a supernatural river then, right? It's operating in this strange way where it actually multiplies the farther east it goes. How would that happen, right? Well, this is the picture of the gospel, isn't it? Where it begins with the word from Christ. Well, actually, spoken by the prophets, of course, and even to, by way of promise to say Adam and Eve. But then as it goes forth into the world, it grows, right? Just by multiplication. One speaks to another and they speak to, hey, what do we call that? Pay it forward, I guess? or. Um, Oh, hmm, I hadn't thought of this. Um, the evangelism is the original multi-level marketing scheme, right? 
one friend sells stuff to two friends, they sell stuff to however it goes, 16, 8, 16, uh, it multiplies, right? All right. And then, of course, who benefits the person upstream? Well, in this case, that would be Jesus, right? Who's the owner of the company, if you like. <laughs> and he makes most of the money. That's how those work. Uh, but it's actually, actually beautiful, right? Because they're all for him. Um, so that, that's an interesting feature of the water, that we don't have the tributaries being uh, described at all. Even though, geographically, these places that are mentioned, there are tributaries around there. So that wouldn't be foreign to the people, and yet the omission of mentioning them, I think, is significant. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think the other thing I didn't put on the notes that came to mind as we were reading is the, um, wasn't Ezekiel sitting by a river before? <laughs> Do we remember what chapter that was in? Nobody remembers. Not even pastor. Okay, chapter one. In the 13th year of the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, I was among the captives by the? Yeah. River Kabar, and the heavens were open, I saw the visions of God. So this first vision is while he's sitting by the river. Um, this is one where he saw the wheels on wheels and the eyes and the crazy vision of the angels in heaven. A heavenly vision at the beginning. What do we see in chapter 40 to 48 at the end? Heavenly vision. There he's sitting by the river in a foreign land. What's the vision he sees then at the end? He's at the river of God, right? Isn't that beautiful? So uh, what do we call that? Inclusio? I think that's, that's a fancy Latin word. How about bookends? <laughs> On either side, right? And you remember you have bookends? They marry each other? Yeah. Yeah, that came to mind. Actually, Pastor did remember, obviously. <laughs> Since I went right there, I thought it might be chapter one. Was there another bit with the river? I thought there might have been. But that's good enough, I think, for the point. So this is chapter one, and then we go back to chapter 47, the end of the book, and we find, again mention of a river, but not the river Kabar in the foreign land, but the river that comes out from the altar of God. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So if only, you know, you take the three and a half hours to read the whole thing in one sitting, then you would be like, oh yeah, that's great. Cause I remember not from a year and however many weeks ago <laughs> when we read it first. All right. So that's beautiful. All right. So let's go back to the beginning here. Um, so we're back in the temple. We're at the door of the temple. Um, and which, which part of the temple would that be? I, I guess it's the main door. Um, but he can see that, that the water flows under the threshold of the temple. So there's some kind of, what is that? Aqueduct? No. Well, that would be, or a channel or something, you know, but it's coming out flowing from under the right side of the temple, the south of the altar. So we have water flowing forth from the altar. Hmm. I don't know what's going on out there. Um, mm, oh, I actually wrote it all down here. Or maybe I wrote some of it down. Um, is there a time where Walter come, water comes out? Walter. Water comes out from, from Jesus. Yeah. Comes out from his side. Jesus actually say, what, does he ever talk about springs of living water? From, from me flow springs of living water. Yeah, this would be uh, John chapter 6 is the one you want to think of there, where he also says you must eat his body and drink his blood. So you have both sacrament, baptism and Lord's Supper. Oh, yes, baptism. What did I write? The indwelling of the glory of the Yahweh in the temple was necessary for the life-giving water to flow from the temple. So without Christ there, then, of course, the water does not flow. But with him there, then the water flows. 
And it flows um, because it comes from the sacrificial atonement of Christ. Of course, this is set in contrast to the altars of the te- uh, tabernacle and temple. What flowed out from the, those altars? The blood of the sacrifices that were being poured out. They had a channel that would run out into the valley of uh, Gehenna, the, the trash dump, all the blood running out of the temple. Can you imagine? I had to smell. Right, this is coming out, but you have here water, cleansing water. Because, of course, it's the sacrifice of Christ that brings cleansing for the nations. And we'll see more than... I don't know what's going on out there. More than cleansing for the nations, but uh, cleansing for all people. You'll notice here, um, what is it described as? Uh, Let's see, the brought out there was water flowing from under the threshold, from the right side, it brought me out to the north gate, led me to the outside... The water running out on the right side. They left it out. Oh, it's because in, um, in the Greek version of, the, of this text, not the, the Hebrew, it's called the water of phasis, the water of release. Hmm, which is interesting. Now, it's, all, it's, not in, the, it's in the Greek. It's not here in the, in the Hebrew, um, which, you know, you can, that's a text-critical issue. Well, which is authentic, <laughs> Right? That's a text criticism, I'm question. Which one is the authentic reading? I, I'm not so hung up on that um, because we know that this water that comes out is for the healing of the nations, is for forgiveness of sins. It's the water of release. So you have that. And it comes from Christ's sacrifice. So the thing about all the ways that Paul talks in the New Testament about baptism being connected to not only to water, but also to Christ's death. Right? We were buried with Christ, therefore, through baptism into death. Also to Christ's blood, right? We were washed in his blood, made clean in the blood of the lamb. That's John, actually. All right? So you have, you have forgiveness. So this is the water of forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Uh, and it's coming out from the altar from Christ. All right. Then, then we have that water and that step, stepping up. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The far, thousand cubits, which is, what do we figure 18, I don't even know what's a cubit. It's a foot and a half. So what is 1,500 feet roughly in mile? Or 1,500 feet. Oh, you, anybody do math like that? How many feet are in a mile? 5,000. 252. 5,000? All right, so quarter of a mile, quarter of a mile, roughly, right? Or maybe a third of a mile. All right. I know I should know these. I should know that kind of information. I don't know this Bible stuff. That's weird. <laughs> Ankles, knees, uh, waist, and then it would and then it would overwhelm him. Hmm. Does that sound like baptism? Also, we were buried with Christ through the wash, being drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. Right. He's being, the water's being brought upon him. Right. And then it's too too deep for swimming. Right. <laughs> a river that cannot be crossed. So that the tides and the currents. It's a, if you get caught in that water, what's it going to do? Well, yeah, it's just going to carry you away, right? Carry you away. But actually, that's a nice picture of baptism, right? To being carried away with Christ. Yeah, we can get carried away <laughs> if, it's, if it's by Jesus, right? How's that? That's nice. Uh, so he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me to the bank of the river. All right. This is interesting because, uh, of course, uh, this would happen. This is like, you know about the California River? Have you heard of the California River? It's in L.A., Los Angeles. Oh, it's the L.A. River. Oh, yes. The Los Angeles River, which is really funny because it's not a river. It's a riverbed, 
that's lined with concrete. Man-made concrete. <laughs> Man-made concrete. What do they what do they call that? A, a, so when they want to, they do this when they do like housing additions for drainage, right? Yeah, it goes into a retention pond. Well, this is like, it's not even the pond, it goes all the way to the ocean, I think, right? I only know about it from trans, uh, Terminator 2, of course, with the bike chase through there. Terminator's chasing the kid, John Connor. All right, this is really helpful. But, um, but what happens to that? It's there, most of the time it's dry. Except for when, like, was it a week ago now? They had their, what did, what did we hear it called on, on the radio? Atmospheric river or something. I think we used to call it a downpour. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, but in any case, well, okay, fine. You want to describe this feature of the way that the water is brought out of the sea and it, yeah. Um, when you have that moment, then you need this riverbed to just fake as it is to carry that water away. Otherwise you have flooding issues. This is what I experienced when I was in Houston. Remember Houston, the problem with Hurricane Harvey? I was there a couple weeks after Harvey, or a week after Harvey. And many of the, what they did, in case it might like rain a lot, is they just built, built up riverbeds. And then they just put right next to the river, what had been the floodplain, they just, that's where they built the houses, right? As long as you build, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers or somebody builds up, uh, same thing on the Mississippi. What do they call those things? Levees? Levees? Yeah, levees. As long as you build levees, it'll be fine. Unless you have a hurricane that decides to sit over Houston for days, raining. And then, and into all those neighborhoods, just completely flooded. Right? What? Yeah, I was sick for weeks after that because of the mold. It doesn't take long for black mold to grow. Not in that climate anyway. Plus those houses, they just, because people just lock the doors and walk away. They're like, it's not recoverable. Yeah. We, had, we went to one house where the, they had, it was only a week after, and they had already gutted the whole thing. The, the homeowners are like, we can't afford to go any. We're just going to try to do, make the best out of it, live on the second floor, and then, you know, because it was up two, three feet, I think, in that, in that housing. And some places even higher than that. All right. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, yes, what I wrote on the sheet. In desert climates such as that, it's the east of the watershed of southern Cana. Um, so there's water to the south, there's water to the north, but not in the central part. Flash floods are not unknown. The river is, but this river is continual, deep enough to swim in. And the waters came up or rose up or is exalted. And this is the same language used by Moses um, at the Red Sea crossing. But the waters rose up, the waters rose up, O Lord. And they, they rose up, of course, as a wall to their left and their right for Israel to pass through on dry ground. But of course, catastrophically, upon Egypt, right, the Egyptians, to, to overwhelm them because they were the enemies of God. So we see waters being used for both salvation and for judgment. It is interesting because we're saved by waters, but this is where you have this language of type and anti-type. Have you heard the? You've heard me use this before. Um, and I don't always use it correctly, so now I'm going to correct myself. Ready? So a type is something that's kind of a one-to-one -one correspondence. An anti-type is a one-to-one -one but by way of the opposite. All right, so the people of Israel were saved through the dry land, but on the midst of the sea. Or Noah was saved in the midst of the dry ark, but in the midst of the flood. 
right? They go into the promised land through on dry land across the Jordan, but the water stands as a heap on either side. So they have water on either side. Those are anti-types of baptism where you don't go through on dry land, but you actually go through the flood. You go, you go through the sea, you go through the Jordan, through the water, right? Overwhelmed, right? Washed, drowned, all that picture that we've talked about. So that's type and anti-type. Dry land, what? Wetness. Does that make sense? All right. So you can work it both ways. That's the point. Um, I don't know if that's ever bothered you. It's like, well, how is that a picture of baptism? Because they're going through on dry ground. We go through the water, right? But it's through the, by way of the opposite, even though it corresponds. Hmm. All right. Um, so used as the song of the sea where Yahweh is subject, um, the subject, he's the one doing the thing after the Israelites cross the Red Sea and the waters drowned his foes. And then St. Paul says, this is a pattern of baptism. So there's the Red Sea is the anti-type baptism, the type first Corinthians 10. Maybe we should see that quick just so you can see this. Ah, come on. There we go. Uh, I don't know why I do it this way. It's easier for me to type. These things, let's cancel, let's do it this way. There we go. First, core 10. Dun, dun, dun. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. You've heard this before, right? So there even the rock with the water coming out from its side is a picture of Christ too. All right. Um, now, the picture of this water, of course, is that it's going east from the temple. If you remember the geography on that other map, there's the temple district, and then the Jordan River is to the, is to the east. Sorry. <laughs> to the east, and so then it's flowing to the east. Um, and there's more to that in a minute. But ultimately, it's flowing to the Dead Sea, which I think is really beautiful, right? Because the Dead Sea is dead because of... Why is it so salty? That's the hint. Salt. Oh, have we never talked about this? Uh, it doesn't go anywhere? Oh, it does. It flows out. Yeah, it fl or flows down. It's flowing down from the north, right? From Galilee. It doesn't go anywhere. I, I mean, I suppose that's true. There's rivers feeding into it. But why is it so salty? Hmm. Okay, well, hold that thought. We'll come back to that. All right. And of course, now the Dead Sea is going to be renewed with fresh water. Okay? Hmm. Come back to that. So let's talk about the benefit that it brings. So when I returned there along the bank of the river, there were, ah, many trees on one side and the other. We'll see this in Revelation as well, chapter 21, I think, or 22. I think it's 21, with the rivers on either side of the road, of the street. Uh, not river, trees. Hmm, trees ordered around a river. What, other, what else does that echo? What else does that sound like? This is in the, in the desert, by the way. Trees where there once was a desert. Think, now flip it. Trees that became a desert. The garden, Garden of Eden. Right, right. Why can't we find the Garden of Eden? Because it's a desert now. It's been made a desert. Yeah, we can't go back there. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, so there's this reversal. And the water flows down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. So there you go. That's what I was just saying, right? Oh, by the way, if it's going east, we have to note which sea we're talking about. The sea to the east is, of course, the Dead Sea. The sea to the west would be the 
is a big one. Mediterranean. I, yeah, it's usually called the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. Right, but notice when this water enters into the sea, into the Dead Sea, its waters are healed. So now it can teem with life. There's no fish in the Dead Sea. <laughs> I mean, there might be some. I'm sure there's stuff that lives in there, just like there's creatures that live in like volcanic lakes, where it's like two, and they look like alien beings, because somehow they can live in a highly, I guess that would be alkaline environment, right? Alkaline? It's toxic, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's even acidic, maybe too. I don't know. And look what happens. This once dead sea now is teeming with life with a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. So it's the river that brings healing. Notice what's also happening here. It's not just for the healing of the nations, but it's for the healing of, cre of creation, of all creation. Because remember, by Adam's transgression, not only did all, all man fall, all mankind fall, also creation was cursed. He brought, he brought the curse upon the world. The curse of, of, of Adam's sin was actually known in creation, right? By the sweat of your brow, pain in childbirth, etc. All right, we're not playing here. We're listening. Thank you. Uh, it shall be that, oh, wait a minute, fishermen. I, we've not had any of this before in Ezekiel, right? Fish, fishermen. Hmm. And Getty is a real place. And, I, and most people agree that the place mentioned here is the place mentioned in the, here in Ezekiel is the place that's there today. There's an Israel National Park or something is what it's called. So you can go there. It's on the north, I probably wrote it on there, northeast bank of the Dead Sea. Well, quite a ways up. up. What happens is they have, have you ever seen, I forget what they call these things, escarpments? Have you heard of an escarpment? I had to look this up. I don't know what these things are. So it's one elevation, and then there's a slope, and then there's another flat plane. So a plane and a plane, but then there's a slope. It's not exactly Mesa and Plateau, but I think it's similar to that. Right? But the bank is called an escarpment. Okay. This is a 600-foot descent. So it's a long bank there. And they have a big park there, and you can go, I guess, climb on the hills and that sort of thing. It's called Engadi. Um, so you can go there. Uh, in Glame, Glame, that's probably not how you pronounce it. Let's see. Englaim, yes. Englaim. Uh, there we go. Good job. Uh, don't know where that is. <laughs> Lots of arguments. Everything I looked at was like, well, we're not sure. Um, but I like the idea that it's on the opposite side of the sea. Um, so to the south. Wait a minute, northeast, southwest. And so then you have these two cities that are on, that the river is being, that are making these places now pools uh, full. Actually, we prayed that in the psalm this week, didn't we? About pools in the desert, Psalm 84? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the, these places, and Gedi is still an oasis of a sort, um, even out in the desert, but Englaim is not. We don't even know where that is. But now we have two, and they're on the other side of the sea. Because the whole sea has been, what did it say? Healed. So it's surrounded now by life. So this transformation of the Dead Sea is pretty. I mean, what a great picture, not only of baptism, but of the renewal of all creation, right? The sea which is dead. Now, uh, did I, have we gotten to where I told you what the sea is? Yes, we're getting there. Um, the guide interprets the river of life and describes 
Yeah, well, we can do this. And describes uh, the health-giving results it brings. They correspond to the well-known geography and topography of the region with an element of transformation, which we talked about. The entire valley from the Sea of Galilee down is called the Arabah in the Bible. Now, not today. Today, it's a much more narrow. It's just the desert, and it's just a portion of that. But uh, in the Bible, it's the whole course of the river from the Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Notice that the Sea of Galilee never restores the Dead Sea, even though it was, that's fresh water, spring-fed, but then, and also tributaries from the Mediterranean. The course described could be understood to flow directly eastward from, um, from the altar. But there is an interesting note here, um, and I don't, I don't think this version translated it right. I think it just skipped over it because it didn't know what to do with it. Bank of the river, the trees on one side or the other down, and it shall be that when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Oh, no, I didn't put it. So the actual literal here, and they don't even give you a note. This is called the Texas Receptus. Let's look at ESV. Uh, I saw the bank of the river, very many trees. He said to me, the water flows and enters the sea. The water flows and become, and wherever the river goes, where is it that it called it two rivers? Yeah, see, they don't even bother translating it that way. Maybe it's right here. No. Um, I should have written it down. Yeah, there it is. They get, ESV gives the note. In verse 9, everybody translates it as singular, the river. But the Septuagint, the Syriac, the Vulgate, the Targum, they all say the two rivers. Oh, where's two rivers? Is that near here? North of Manitowoc. North of Manitowoc. Yeah, so where do you think they... Oh, it's probably because there's two rivers there. Rivers. Rivers? Yeah. That's how you pronounce it locally. All right, so it was in verse 9. Oh, no. No, I missed it. It was right here the whole time. Why, why didn't anybody point it out? The rivers. The rivers. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was one river. Um, there is a prophecy in Zechariah 14 which would be a parallel to this. So we should look at it. Zechariah 14. Uh, today is coming. 14 verse, what did I say? 14 verse 4. Yeah, there it is. And in that day, his feet, well, we go back a verse. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Remember this? Anybody remember this? No, okay. Me neither. Making a very large valley, half of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it to the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to as all you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake. Now, I mean, this is a strange prophecy, isn't it? Like, when did the Mount of Olives was split in two? And then you're supposed to go through the split? To escape, it does say it sound like passing through the sea, right? But here it's the mountain, right? Well, if there was a very large river or a river that started small but got very large, by the time it hits the Mount of Olives, what's it going to do? It's going east. Remember, this is a supernatural river. It's going east, and nothing's going to stop it. It's just going to go right through the mountain, split it in two. I think that's a nice that's a nice theory as to why. And so ESV just kind of softens it. We'll just say the river because we don't need you to think too hard about this. But 
There's the argument that the Septuagint is actually the, the older tradition, textual tradition. It's certainly the one the New Testament uses more often than not. Is the Septuagint is the Greek, it's abbreviated LXX. It refers to the 70 translators. You don't have to understand the history. But um, if you're interested, we can talk about it someday. All right, so I like that idea that it goes and it becomes two rivers as it splits, and then it goes into, it goes north of the, of the Dead Sea, and then the other split goes to that. So that's the idea. My note for nine says the Hebrew is unclear. The Hebrew is unclear. Oh, so that's so nice. And so then it's crossing these mountainous hills and valleys, which rivers don't do. They don't go up hills, right? They just go right through, right? Or usually they do this. I saw a video on, on, the, on social media, you know, when you're just scroll, doom scrolling, you're like, oh, I'm so dead, I'm so tired, right? And then I'm like, what's that? And it's like, if you just, if you have sand in a bed and you start releasing water on one end, it will not go straight through. It, it always does that. But the easiest path is not like, even with a flat, it's like, what is the principle that it doesn't just go straight? It makes all these winding, and it's not just, it creates the contour that it actually follows, because it erodes as it goes. There's, there's probably a whole principle to it. I don't know what it is. All right. Uh, yeah, requiring God's intervention or saying it's miraculous or supernatural. This would provide, God's promise to provide rivers, rivers in the desert. Ah, he's, he promises that in many places. I gave you one, Isaiah 43, right? Uh, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Right, now this is how Isaiah was at least 100 years before Ezekiel. How? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was about 100 years. And passing, this is compared to our, the antitype of Exodus redemption when the Israel passed through on dry land, which we talked about. All right, now here's our point about the Dead Sea. Ready? You probably already read it because you're waiting for Pastor to get to it. Fourth paragraph. In the Bible, the desert represents a lost condition, right? No life. An emblem of a world estranged from God and shut out of his kingdom. You don't want to be in the desert, right? Incidentally, every time Abraham goes back home or sends his messenger back home, they don't go through the desert, which would be the shorter path. They follow the, which river is it? The Euphrates, which requires you to go quite a ways farther north and south to stay along the river. But that's, that's where there's life um, until recently. And now you can put cities out in the middle of nowhere, like Abu Dhabi or something, right? Just fake city in the middle of the desert or on the, well, it's on the shore, but whatever. The Dead Sea is a symbol of the corrupt world since it was in judgment on the corrupt world in which it originated. The image of Sodom and Gomorrah is seen underneath its waves. Genesis 19. I'm being poetic there, but you get the idea. Why is it salty? Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. You know, the destruction there. Yeah, so the sterility of... they were At least one of those cities was on the coast. Yeah. So the sterility of the, uh, yeah, now, I mean, again, this is a little bit of artistic license, but this is, this is pretty unanimous amongst the people I've read. Yeah, the, I've always held that. I mean, you see the pillar of sight, salt with Lot's wife, right? So the connection there to the Dead Sea. Or you can just go out there and you can just lay on the top of the water and just float. Um, 
dead. Where was I? The sterility of the Dead Sea is a disease of a sort. Earlier in Ezekiel, God had spoken of sending pestilence, disease as an agent of his wrath. We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the healing is the gospel counterpart as God dispenses his grace, even upon creation, right? Healing can be used for spiritual healing as well through the forgiveness of sins brought by the vicarious atonement of our suffering Savior. By his wounds, we are healed. So healed in body, healed in soul or spirit, right? Made, made whole again. Um, this is another great picture then of what I preached on on Wednesday night, that Jesus cares for not just your spiritual well-being, your relationship to God, but also your bodily well-being, right? He cares for your body. Uh, and we know this if you follow people who engage in evil, they suffer in their body. It, it happens, right? Um, and that's why they have to use all these technologies to try to extend their lifespan. <laughs> now, that's, I'm not saying that you guys are engaged in evil because you have replacement body parts. Hear me right. All right. Um, but, I mean, well, I'll just use this. I've been digging into um, um, a whole science of, of evaluating people's uh, physical appearance. And um, what's the thing about frowning? How many muscles does it take to frown versus how many it takes to smile? You've heard this before? Do you know this? It's some old wives' tale or whatever. It's actually true that it takes a great deal of effort to frown, to scowl. Right? But then it, it becomes a fixture of your face because it reorients the structure of your face. If you're, if you don't ever, if you're always scowling, you know, you're, you get the permanently furrowed brow, right? So you can see it in people's face if they're engaged in things that are bringing aff affliction in their conscience, especially. You can see it in their face. Uh, now you're going to go around looking at people and trying to figure out. Well, physical ailments can cause that too, like fibromyalgia, which I have. People mm. do get a permanent, like this. Right, because their body's under because stress. Yep, Your they're in pain. Constantly. So it's a fibromyalgia. Like, I forget what they call it, but Yeah. Like, you get Botox to try to help, but no. I don't think that would. <laughs> let's, let's put rat poison in our face. We'll see that what happens. Um, yeah, I, so I'm talking about people who are engaged in spiritual things. I mean, there's a physical manifestation, yeah. physic to physic. But, uh, what, oh, there's the other science. That, what do they call it? Um, where, like, you can, like, part of healing is mindset. Um, and doctors are, are getting it caught on this, like, like if you're even if you have like terminal cancer, like to go go for walks and like you need to engage in like um, positive behaviors and, and thoughts too, like even um, considering all that God has accomplished in you would be how we do it spiritually, psychosomatic, right? You think you're sick, and then guess what happens? You do are sick. Yeah, you actually put your body under that stress, which is that's it seems all pseudo spiritual weirdness, but it follows. Right? So just say you're not sick and you'll be fine. Uh, maybe it doesn't work that way. All right. So where were we? This is taking a bit longer than what I thought, but that's okay. Ah, yes. Um, so we have the, uh, the, we have the river. And uh, we don't really hear much about the river in Genesis 1. We hear about the trees, though. We hear about the garden. And we hear about it being watered by four rivers, I think, right? Tigris, Euphrates. The one where there's gold in that place, bdellium and gold. What's that one? Who remembers the rivers of Genesis 1? Mm, well, there is Ur. Yeah, you can find it. Genesis 1, you find it for us. Find the rivers. Uh, but here we have the rivers again, but now it's one river. It's focused. 
And then notice what happens. We have a multitude of fish. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've read the New Testament, I'm always like, where did Jesus get this fishermen of, fishers of men thing? Yeah, I know that they were fishermen, but why is there, I mean, there's at least three, four major stories in the Bible where, where there's fishing. And you're like, well, that's because, you know, Jesus wants to relate to Gus, who likes to fish, right? <laughs> right. Um, I think it's connected to these, to these two verses of all things, 9 and 10, that uh, in the New Testament, Jesus takes this picture and he says, this is exactly what the gospel does for sinners. That those who proclaiming the gospel are the fishermen who stand by these, these waters that bring life, that is Christ. They proclaim him and out and they gather into, into the, well, what becomes the church, right? The great multitude of fish. So you have that both at the, in like Luke 5 at the beginning, towards the beginning of Luke's gospel when Peter, Peter is instructed by Jesus to let out the nets on the other side. Remember that? Yeah. And then he catches a great fish at the command of Jesus. And then notice that's at Galilee, not at the Dead Sea. So there's still something new coming. And then at the end, in John's gospel, John 21, um, you have the, um, the fishing after the resurrection. And... Uh, they remember they caught, John says, 153 fish, <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> this is, this is, it makes it the best fisherman story. I've preached that before, ever, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, you have to brag about the number of fish you caught. Yeah, right. They don't have enough tags for this. Uh, I'm going fishing. We're going too. Cast your net on the right side and you'll find some. They weren't able to cast. Or now they were able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And then John says they brought him to the shore, very large fish, 153. And if you can imagine, we have 2,000 years of people trying to figure out what that means. And there's enough opinions that you'll never get there. But a lot of people try to work with the numbers, 12, 11, 7, try to make the math work. It's just trying to say that there was a lot. Mm, I don't know. I don't, I don't go with that. It already says full. I... I think the number is significant. I just think it's lost to history. I don't know what John was getting after there. Um, but isn't this the, this is the picture. Peter is becoming fishers of, as he says in Luke 5, fishers of men, right? And the fish represent life coming out of these new waters are the believers in Christ. This is, this, that, those two verses, those two verses in Ezekiel are the basis for all of that. But in, now, you know, of course, you've taken the time to actually study Ezekiel in some detail with me. And so you can actually, I think you can see that pretty readily, right? It's water that gives life. There's great number of fish and there's fishermen that spread their nets and bring in this, these fish, the same kinds of fish that belong in the great sea. That's the Mediterranean exceedingly many. All right. Uh, notice the swamps and marshes and won't be healed to be given over to salt, but you don't belong there. You belong by the banks of the river. You belong by the water, the water that's healed. That's Christ. Right. Don't, not out there. Same theme in Ezekiel we've seen. Not outside the temple, in the temple. Not in other places, by the waters where there's life. Right? So you don't have all of creation being restored quite yet in this picture, but you get the idea. Isn't that lovely? It's like, whoa, what is he talking about? Like, we know the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Jesus shows us what it means. I think that's beautiful. Uh, so the two rivers are, are one but split, we already talked about that, half flowing to the Eastern Dead Sea and half flowing to the Western Mediterranean Sea, which means that it also would have to go that way. That's weird. 
This verse forms the basis of Peter's miraculous catch of fish before the resurrection, which we talked about, as well as the catch after the resurrection. The parable of the, and also the parable of the net cast into the sea in which every kind is caught. That's Matthew 13. All right, so there we have, like we talked about, the fish being men, and by way of the salvation, the water and the fishermen being brought into the church. The En Gedi, it means goat spring, is an oasis fed by a spring at the top of the 600-foot slope on the west side of the Dead Sea. There we go. I think I got that right before, <laughs> northwest. And then in Eglaim, the spring of two calves is unknown but favored to be opposite En Gedi, thus surrounding the sea. All right. And then we talk about the trees. So along the bank of the river, on this side and on that, all around, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Um, their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. So if you've ever thought about this, I mean, we've talked about it before. The day, the week, the seasons, the year are all pictures of death and resurrection. Do I need to say that again? The days, the weeks, the seasons, the years are pictures of death and resurrection. As God established, wait a minute, he does that even before they fall into sin? In other words, he was teaching us of our need to die with Christ and rise with him even before he made us. Oh, that's a mind-bending kind of thought, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so the day. Yeah. 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 So, so again, the assertion of the New Testament is that Christ was crucified even before the world began, before the foundation of the world. It's not a do-over. The, the flood is not a do-over, right? Oh, I didn't get it right the first time. We'll try again. Oh, didn't get it right this time. Because as I point out to the children, because they all hear this in probably in Sunday school materials or whatever, that Noah was a virtuous man. He was a good man. He was the only believer. It's like, well, he was a believer, but not because he was a good man, as is evident before the flood and after the flood. And by his sons. God knew what we were going to be doing. He was working through history, by history, Every action that he took was to confess Christ for us ahead of time. Now, at the time, do they realize what's happening? No. But we've done this exercise. We'll continue to do it. Like, well, I, some of these are fairly obvious, like um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, which we'll hear, you know, next week. Is that next week? That's yeah, Lent. Anyway, what Sunday do we hear that in Lent? I thought it was the first time. Uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. We're like, well, that's weird. Why would he ask him to do that? And why would he obey? And then why would God provide a substitute? Oh, yes. <laughs> Fairly obvious to us now who have seen Christ, right? This is the father offering up his son. And, and unlike Ab Abraham, Isaac is the antitype where a substitute is made. The father with his son, Jesus, is the, type, is the actual type where no, no substitute is made. The son is sacrificed for sins. Isaac could not atone for Abraham's sin. Jesus atones for our sin. All right. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, so seasons are a sign of death and resurrection. Right now? Uh, I mean, we have evergreens. Even they don't look so hot. Uh, the grass doesn't look so good, although we see some spots of green coming in already because of all the water, I suppose, right? Um, there's, no, there's no fruit on the trees. The leaves are not out, right? It's, they're dead, effectively, but they'll be raised from the dead in the spring, this is why we love celebrate. This is why we celebrate Easter, resurrection of our Lord in the spring, in part, 
right? This is the, why that pattern. You could celebrate any time of the year, and every Sunday is a little Easter of a way. Um, but how much better when actually things are growing and they're green, and we have flowers and right. So that so we can rejoice in this. The reason we love the spring is it's showing us what Christ is going to do for us on the last day, and raise us all from the dead, even restore all creation as He does every spring. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, except here we don't have to do that anymore. The trees are always in leaf and their fruit never fails. So unlike the fig tree that Jesus says, why don't you have figs? And the, they're like, well, it's not the season for figs, Jesus. <laughs> it's like, it's supposed to be bearing figs. And they're like, what are you doing? And then he curses it. Like, why did you curse it? The poor fig tree. It's not its fault. It's not the time for figs. Ah, it's supposed to be bearing figs all year round. Right? That's how, that's how creation is supposed to be. Jesus is pointing that out. And that he curses it because that is what... That is what we see with the way that um, plants and, well, ultimately people fail, right, and die. How's that? Yeah. So they will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. So it's not because they themselves are fruit-bearing normally, but because their water is life-giving water. So they'll never fail because they are receiving their nourishment from, from the altar, Hmm, okay, so this picture of Christians, is it not? Right? He says, what, how does Paul describe it in Ephesians? Right? That we bear fruit with patience, or um, these are the fruits of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the Lord and, what do we say in the Creed? Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and yeah, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified the Lord and giver of life. So it's the spirit who's the life-giving breath, also the one who joins us to Christ, who gives us life, who is the springs of living water. All these pictures are right here. The New Testament is just interpreting what we presumably already knew from reading Ezekiel many times, you know, with our, in our church, which we don't. <laughs> we read like three readings from Ezekiel all year. That's it. Mm. Uh, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves Ah, for medicine. And I know, I know, Vicky perked up at that. Natural medicines, right? Yeah. And there's still some truth to that. You know, like the ganja leaf is, uh, no, that's not the one I was thinking. <laughs> Actually, no, it is. Um, that I have, I have three children that receive extract from, uh, from cannabis for seizures, and it works. It's a significant part of their treatment. Um, but we can't grow it legally in the U.S., well, not federally, states can, but you can't grow it for medicine and transport it across state lines because it's banned federally. So where do we get it from? England, because you can transport it internationally, apparently. So we're getting cannabis extract from, that's pharmaceutically produced in England and shipped here because the federal government won't. Hmm. Now I know people abuse it, just like they do um, all the opium derivatives, right? Which could be, a, a wonderful gift in times of great pain to try to alleviate the pain or at least mute it. Uh, of course, then those get abused and you have fentanyl, right? And people are just completely muted to any kind of feeling, <laughs> right? Um, so, the, so the trees will be used correctly as well. <laughs> that would be the point there. And of course, we're the ones who are, grafted, who are joined to that water and are made to be, or grafted actually onto the, the, the root or the shoot of Jesse, of Jesus, and we are made to then to bear fruit and actually to, to leaves that bring healing, right? 
So this is true in eternity, but I would suggest it's already being, being made true now um, in the church by Christ, you know, as the Lord renews you, makes you life-giving or fruit-bearing, I guess is what we'd say, with patience and peace and kindness and gentleness and all of that. Um, but also that you can bring healing, right, by forgiving people their sins. All right, the leave. I don't know if the, if the New Testament picks up on the leave picture, but they do on the fruit. <laughs> definitely on fruit. Yeah, so this is definitely a lot of creation language here, but also creation in lieu are understood in light of the church, right, with fishermen and fish and fruit bearing um, and Christ being the river that feeds us or nourishes us, gives us life. Okay, so I did not look, we did not look at last week. I think we'll come back. So if you have February 3rd, we're going to look at it on February 18th. <laughs> we'll, we'll recap this and then we'll dig into the next chapter. All right, I just think there's so much here that we can cover. And we only, we only scratched the surface today. But it's beautiful. This, this is probably the, I don't know. This is a chapter that we probably should, we should probably hear in the church because of its gospel comfort, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, dry bones is good. That one's great, right? Um, sheep and shepherd, that chapter is great. But maybe the river of life chapter needs to find a place as well. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.